We're looking at uh, uh, God's word in the New Testament of the Bible in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. So if you want to uh, turn up a Bible nearby, it's on page 968, um, you'll find the uh, passage that we're looking at, uh, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we'll just get a bit of background by reading verse uh, 23 of chapter 4, um, as we can kind of tune, tune into it. So it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread uh, to, all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Uh, we'll stop there. So this is a very famous passage, as uh, we uh, said last week. And again, if, if you're new to Christianity or you've just come back to church after a long time, or really most people, or many people who did RE during a certain period of years, I suppose, will be familiar with these statements of Jesus. The blessed are the so-and-sos, uh, they call, they're, they're called beatitudes. Because the Greek word, uh, the Hebrew, uh, the uh, Latin word rather, in one of the versions was uh, uh, the word for blessed, which is what they begin with, is, is a word from which we get beatitude. But that doesn't matter too much at all. They are statements about being blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, the people at the time wanted to know God at work in their lives. I suppose, as we saw last week, an equivalent phrase would be spirituality. People who, who are kind of thinking, yeah, I'd like to know something of what God does and I'd like a, a bit of God or, or something like that in my life. Uh, then, then that was the idea of being blessed. Uh, and these people had heard Jesus speaking. That's why uh, I read the, the first few verses from the previous chapter. These people that Jesus had been speaking to, uh, uh, some of them go with him up a hill and he begins to teach them those who really wanted to know. Now, what he says in this kind of series of statements, it's not like, you know, these books you see sometimes in bookshops, you know, uh, windows for dummies or, you know, this isn't kind of being blessed for dummies kind of idea. This isn't some kind of manual for spiritual blessing. This isn't a how to get the blessing of God type of teaching at all. As we read and as we thought last week, it's all part of the impact Jesus is making. He's in those areas up north, uh, in, particularly in the north of Israel, teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Not just teaching about it, but doing things that the Old Testament promised would come when God did something new again when his kingdom came. The Old Testament prophets promised all kinds of things would happen. And Jesus was doing those very things all around that part of northern Israel and beyond it. So he's showing himself to be the king. And the first beatitude, the first of these phrases in verse 3, and the eighth one in verse 10 end up with the phrase, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven. 
Uh, Mark and Luke talk about the kingdom of God. The two statements are interchangeable. So as I say, this is not Jesus telling us how to be blessed. Telling us, say, if you do these things, if you live this kind of life, then you'll get spirituality. No, not at all. He's saying to people who already have been touched by the king, who've already come to know what it means to to respond to Jesus and, and to have him intervene in their lives, he's telling those people the road you walk as people who have the kingdom of heaven, as people who follow the king. It's how the kingdom is seen in your life or in your community. That's what being blessed looks like. We're already there if we're believers. This isn't how you get there. This is about how you are when you are there, if you see what I mean. And as you continue in that road. And so we saw last week, the first one is called, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus said, those people are the kingdom of heaven, uh, have the kingdom of heaven. As we saw last week, they're like the prodigal son when he was in the pigsty. He came to himself. He, He, as the old version says, he came to his senses, as the new ones say. And he thought, I've got nothing. I've finished. I'm no good. I'm out. I'm empty. You know, the, 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 the yellow light on my petrol tank came on 50 miles ago, and that's the end. Finished. I'm out of it. Poor in spirit. And that's what we're like. We come into the kingdom realizing that we're only going to get there by receiving something from the king. Not by contributing anything. Now that goes against, uh, right against the grain of what a lot of people want with spirituality, isn't it? We want to make a contribution, don't we? If only we could do a little bit. If only I could just help God out a little bit. If only I could contribute a little bit. If I could be a little good, a little bit better or do a little bit of this. No, no Jesus, says the, first, the absolute first point, the starting point is, I'm out, I'm finished. Unless God gives me what I need, unless I get the rescue he promises, I'm over. It's over. Poor in spirit. That's how we begin. But you know, it's still a pressure when we're Christians. We still often behave as believers like this, don't we? If only I do this, if I did this, God would love me, we think. Or if I do this, then he will do that. We start trying to bargaining, bargain with him in prayer. No, that's way out of line. We're done. We need mercy. We've got nothing. Do you know, do you ever go to B&Q and buy paint? Um, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Some of you do. Maybe you go to home base. Let's be fair. And, you know, even John Lewis's have probably got one of these. You know, if you want one of these colors, you can go and you can, they can mix the color for you. But, you know, they start off with a base color, don't they? And then they start adding stuff in. Well, you know, the, the, the Beatitudes, I, I, I'd like to see them as, as kind of mixing colors into the paint. The, the base The base coat, the base color is that first beatitude, the first thing. Poor in spirit, got nothing. That's where it all begins. And it's not just Jesus who said that. This uh, Psalm 34 has a reference to, uh, uh, we won't read it now, I'm very short on time today. But um, if you look up Psalm 34, there's an interesting phrase. A man there talks about how God rescued him. And it says, this poor man cried. And the Lord rescued him from all of his troubles. Some of you will know that psalm. This poor man, that's that sense of, I've got nothing. I just need God to rescue me. In Isaiah 57, if you want to check it out, verse 15, God says, This is where I live. 
I live high in the heavens. This is Isaiah prophesying. And then he says, but I also live with him who is lowly and contrite of heart. God loves to dwell. So whether we're talking about rescue or whether we're talking about the ongoing relationship we have with God, whether it's how we start or whether it's how we continue, the base, the base of it all is that we're poor in spirit. We've got nothing. And because we have nothing, Jesus gives us all that we need. And this founda- these foundational statements are pictures of all believers. We're all looking for all of this in our lives and experience. This isn't some kind of list of possible specialism. So we can look out at the, at the congregation like we do with spiritual gifts and say, how many of us are, are, are gifted? You know, how many of us here are going to be poor in spirit? And a few of us say, yeah, that's me. Or how are we going to say mourn? How many? No, no, these aren't kind of special possibilities for certain ones in the kingdom of God. This is for all of us. And all of us as a community, this is the picture of what it is to be a believer, to be in the kingdom of heaven, to know Jesus in our lives. So we need to keep asking how we're doing. How's it going? We walking that way with his help? Well, today we're trying to squeeze in three more descriptions uh, uh, of what being blessed looks like. If you like, three more colors being added in to make the ultimate kind of color into the base. The first one is verse 4. So here's my first big thing to say. Blessing includes mourning. Those who mourn will be comforted. You might think, that's a very strange idea. Because blessed means happy, partly, more than that. So how can people who mourn be happy? Surely it can't just be that being miserable or mourning is good in itself you might think that some people you think that you know they think being miserable is like a uh, a, a good for you type of thing that's not what jesus is saying surely that can't be it is it i suppose sometimes you could say that i suppose if you are grieving something or you're feeling you've lost something then yeah it is a good thing to mourn it's a good thing to let it out it's a good thing to admit to that or to openly or to express that sense of loss in your life But the act of mourning itself is surely not some kind of key to spirituality. So so, uh, what is it then? Well, it's very different to the way our culture works, isn't it? All these statements are very countercultural. We're all supposed to be having a great time, aren't we? Comedy is the big growth in art. art, The big kind of art form growth place is comedy. And it, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, some Christians, well, all of us, we like to like a laugh, I suppose, don't we? Perhaps too much, perhaps too little, I don't know. But sometimes we kind of join in with the culture and feel like, well, I've got to, you know, I've got to be smiley and happy all the time. There's an old hymn that uh, we used to sing when I was a boy. Uh, and, and one of the lines of the hymn went like this. At the cross, uh, the cross, I first saw the light. Some of you will know it. And uh, there my burdens were rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. Well, good for you is all I can say. <laughs> uh, Mary, my wife, was, went to a christening once in a church where uh, on the notice sheet they were advertising... Um, a bereavement, you know, come on Tuesday night. Oh, this is a paraphrase. Come on Tuesday night to a bereavement group. Come and, come and join, sit with friends. Have, have a nice cup of coffee, a piece of cake, and a, gig, a giggle. Was kind of, have a giggle at the bereavement group. What's that? Well, 
We were in uh, uh, Canada two or three years ago, and um, we went to two different churches, and curiously, both of them were, were marketing a, a course for married couples. And the course was called Laugh Your Way to a Healthier Marriage or something. Well, it's okay. Nothing, nothing, wrong, nothing wrong with that, I suppose. But this idea that everything has to be positive and joyful and full of laughter. Well, that's, um, what does this mean here? Maybe there's a clue in that it follows on from the idea of being spiritually poor. It's the next one after that, to being empty at the end. And is Jesus saying that a feature of this road of blessing is that mourning can be part of that road? One uh, commentator, uh, Donald Carson, suggests that this is, if you like, the emotional counterpart to being poor in spirit. There are times when our feelings, if you like, catch up with the spiritual insight. There are times when we mourn. What do we mourn about? Well, Jesus mourned. At least twice we read in the New Testament, he, wore, he, he cried. He was overwhelmed with sorrow. Actually, three times if you include the Garden of Gethsemane. Once was as he overlooked Jerusalem. He stood there. The city was rejecting him. He said, I would have gathered you. Like a hen gathers her chicks, but, but you weren't willing. He cries. At the graveside of Lazarus, here's Jesus weeping at the power of death as he's seen the fracture that's come into uh, this family. He's going to raise Lazarus within minutes, but there he stands crying at what he sees. Still he weeps. What's he weeping at? Of the way the world is, locked into the cycle of death because of sin. He stands there, the creator, and weeps. And you know, those few minutes between that point as he weeps and the resurrection for Lazarus, it's almost like that's where we live, isn't it? Because one day we know the resurrection's coming. And it's almost as if the whole of time is squeezed into those few minutes in John 11 at that incident. And the Son of God is weeping, weeping for the sense of the fracture that sin and death has brought into the world. And we often weep for that, don't we? We look at the world today and we weep. Maybe it's the realization of our own sin as we're aware of it. We cry out like the Apostle Paul did on one occasion. He says, oh, wretched, what a wretched man I am. Or what a, if he was a woman, he'd say, what a wretched woman I am. Sin in my life, it's such a struggle. Who's going to help me? He then goes on to talk about how God helps him in Romans 8. But there's this, oh, kind of cry from him. Or maybe we cry out in suffering. But whatever happens, there are occasions when we are not happy all the day. When we mourn. But Jesus says those who mourn will be comforted. And it's a way of saying, that phrase, will be comforted, is a way of saying in the time, it's an idiom, that God will comfort them. It means that God will be the one who comforts them. And as we mourn over sin in our lives, we realize we can be forgiven. That's comfort. As we mourn over the way the world is, we realize that we join in with creation. Do you know those verses in Romans 8? Romans 8, verse 22. Uh, I'll just read them. 
You can look at them. Paul writes there, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, this idea of mourning, as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then in verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. We mourn over the world, and as we realize that, we, we kind of mourn and groan with the suffering that there is. But we're not on our own in that, because it says the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. He helps us to pray. He too is groaning, as it were, mourning. Uh, in one sense, uh, it's a bit poetic to say it like this, but through the Spirit, Jesus is still weeping over the brokenness of the creation, yet knowing that there will be an end to it. So the really blessed life is one where is this emotional connection with what we know to be true about all that God has done. But there's also honesty about the reality of the world that we're part of, the world that's been broken by sin. We're honest about that. And we know comfort as the Lord is with us, helping us to pray. But we also know that tears are temporary. A day will come when there will be no more crying. So being blessed, first of all, includes mourning. Secondly, being blessed, verse 5, is, is uh, blessed people are meek people. The meek will inherit the earth. Again, it's the opposite of the way the world works, isn't it? What does it mean? If you want to know how the way the world works in this area of meekness, I... I all I do is commend the apprentice to you. <laughs> Don't watch it unless you want to, but you'll know what I mean. Uh, you can actually Google what the most, uh, well, in some ways it's, it's terrifying and hilarious at the same time. But you can, uh, if you go on YouTube, you can watch all the um, interviews of all the candidates. You know, if you want to know what the, kind of how the, what the world's values are, just, just you know, Go on YouTube and watch some of, those, uh, uh, some, of the, some of those statements that the candidates make about the kind of people they aspire to be. That's not meekness. <laughs> what does it mean to be meek? Again, it follows on from the previous statement. Poor in spirit, nothing to offer. I just need mercy. I'm mourning. I'm realizing I'm sinful. I'm realizing I'm forgiven. But I'm still needy. John Stott says that it's one thing for me to say that I'm a miserable sinner, for me to mourn over my own sin, for me to say that I'm poor in spirit. But if you tell me I'm a miserable sinner, I want to punch you on the nose. <laughs> See what I mean? That's not being meek. Meekness is saying, I know who I am. I know I've got nothing. This is where I am. It's living out what we are before God in relationship to others. We could think about meek people in the Bible. Jesus himself called himself meek in Matthew 11. NIV translates it hum humble, but it's the same word as here. People like Moses, people like David in the way he behaved to Saul. None of these were weak. Meek doesn't mean weak. But they all know, knew security in their calling, in their identity, in their place in God's hand. And they had the strength to not have to prove anything. 
They let go of their rights for vengeance in Moses' case in Numbers 12. They were willing to wait as David did, not for him to assassinate Saul, but for God's purposes to work out. They were meek. And I'm going to have to rush on. And that's meekness. Not self-absorbed, not self-driven, not insecure so that we've, uh, we've got to prove something all the time. These people don't need anything because they have everything that really matters. They're going to inherit the earth, it says. If I've got Jesus, I've got everything. I don't need anything else. I don't need to prove anything to you. You don't have to prove anything to me. We're on the same place. Meekness. Third one. It's a bit brief, but you can have a look at that later. I think we'll come back to these Beatitudes sometime soon. The third thing we can say... Blessed people are desperate for righteousness. Verse 6. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be filled. What does righteousness mean? Well, there are three different uh, kind of meanings to it in the Bible at least. Here's the first one. It's being right with God. You know, it's, uh, it's being in the right with God. You know, if you have an argument with someone and you try and make it up, or if you think there's been a misunderstanding, you sometimes say, are we all right? Is it all right? Are we okay? Are we all right? It's that idea of being back in a right relationship. Because the relationship with God has been broken. We're guilty of sin. Jesus has died for us. He's been raised for us. And all that Jesus is, all that Jesus has done becomes ours when we trust him. That's how the kingdom comes to us. We receive it. We've nothing. As I've said, we're poor in spirit. He has everything we need and he gives it to us. That's how we begin the Christian life. And I don't think this is, this is what uh, Jesus is referring to here when he says hunger for that kind of righteousness. Because if we're in the kingdom, that, we've already been in that place, although we never want to leave it, obviously. But there's another kind of righteousness. As we're on the road as followers of Jesus, we realize that there's a lot in our lives that need to be straightened out, need to be put right. We begin to see what Jesus is like. And we begin to want to be more like him. We realize that, that although our, that our sin has been dealt with, the relationship between us and God is there. We are sure of who we are in him and everything. But there's still stuff in us that needs to change. That needs to be, become, we need to become righteous. The Bible has this long word called sanctification. It's, it means becoming more like Jesus. It became, be, being, means being changed on the inside. We, we want that. We want the holiness of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus to be seen in us that's the second thing and the third righteousness is that we also i think when you become a christian you begin to notice things you begin to be aware in a new way although this isn't a um, prerogative of christians alone of course that god's heart is for justice that god's heart is for righteousness and that there's a need in this world for this righteousness to be seen and to be lived out And we see that being like Jesus is to be concerned as he was for righteousness to be seen. We begin to hear the heart of God as we see it in Jesus. As we see it expressed in the Old Testament and the New Testament. For for righteousness, for justice, for fairness, for good. We have that hunger for that. Now, Jesus says that blessed people are hungry and thirsty for that. For righteousness in our own lives and justice in the world around. What does it mean to be hungry or thirsty? This is extreme language, isn't it? 
Most of us, thankfully, don't know what it is to be really hungry or really thirsty. Sorry, we've got another TV reference coming up now. TV alert. Did anyone see Bear Grylls' show, The Island? See that? It's an intriguing show, uh, program, series of programs. What he did, he took, I think, 11 guys, ordinary blokes, put them on a desert island for about 28 days. He gave them some, a day's training. They were just ordinary chaps. Uh, one, two, two of them, uh, three of them were professional film people, but they were part of the group. They, they had to find their own water, their own food, their own shelter. The experiment was to see what modern men are really like, whether they can cut it like our predecessors did. Most intriguing piece of TV. Because, of course, for the first three or four or five days, hunger and thirst consumed them. It was all they could think about. Because they didn't have any food. They had to find it. They had to find their water. They had to capture their food. One, one occasion they caught, caught an alligator for that, or a caiman, but that's another story. But, but as you, if you see the show, these guys in their interviews, they're saying, I can't think of anything else. <laughs> I need food. You know, it was a totally consuming passion that they have. Now Jesus says the person... The blessed person wants more of Jesus in their life, more of righteousness in the world, like that. To be desperate to know that. And how will these people be filled? He promises that they will be filled. They're hungry for more of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He promises the water of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. What about those hungry for justice? There are some Christians, and non-Christians for that matter, who have been so hungry, so passionate, so concerned about, about, about you know, something that they do something. And they know the tremendous fulfillment of, of being part of something that's changed. They're filled in that sense. But what about those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness because all they have is oppression, all they have is injustice, all they have is suffering? They're starving because they don't have any justice in their circumstances. How are they filled? Well, there are examples of that in the Bible. It will be as they suffer. Remember Stephen? One of the, he was the first person to lose his life. Like Jesus on a, a facing a trumped-up charge, facing a mob of people who want him executed. Uh, just before he dies, it says, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He looked up to heaven. He saw Jesus. Something of God's kind of fullness came into him as he suffered. The Apostle Peter wrote to Christians facing that kind of suffering, displaced, like some of those people in Iraq, refugees. And in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, he, he talks to them about suffering uh, for Christ. And he says there, that as you suffer, you participate in his sufferings. He says actually that the God, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, this is very hard to talk about. I mean, who am I? Who are we to say that? Because, you know, we don't face anything like that. But it's what the Bible says. It's what Jesus says. That even as we, we suffer for him, he's with us. And there's a filling that comes through that. With all these aspects of being blessed, it's the Holy Spirit who does it. He works in our lives. As we mourn, we know the Spirit 
groaning and helping us. We kind of join in with him. As we're meek, it's because the Spirit is growing his fruit in our lives. As we hunger and thirst after righteousness, the water of the Spirit satisfies us and will fill us even as we suffer and die. And of course, one day, the final filling will come. Tears are temporary because one day he will put everything right and we will be with him. So let's be living lives that are blessed as we mourn, as we live secure to be meek, knowing that what we already have, that we, sorry, knowing that we already have what matters most. And as we hunger and thirst after righteousness, knowing that we will be filled. Let's continue in God's presence together.